So it is my very great pleasure to have to introduce today Dr. Lesha Gardella, who is for at least another couple of weeks, a researcher and scholar uh, with the National Museum in Denmark, about to become an independent scholar, but who has written widely about various aspects of the Viking age, including a very fun article I assigned to my students about what Vikings did for their pastimes. Um, which is great because it always puts a little bit of a humanity on the Vikings for my students. Um, but anyways, welcome. It's so nice to meet you. And, you know, we'll probably wander around and talk about a few different things like we always do on this podcast. But ostensibly, you're here to talk to us a little bit about Vikings in Slavic lands, uh, which always tends to be kind of a surprise for people that I talk to about Vikings, including my students, because the whole eastern half has, seems like it's been kind of a, a a well-kept secret for a while. So anyway, welcome. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So um, first, I do want to say something not related to the Slavic stuff. Um, I think your book on women and weapons is brilliant. It's just so, I mean, we don't have to talk about that, um, but it's so thoughtful. And so, well, obviously well-researched because that's what you do so well, but it also is um, measured and professional. And, you know, we were all there when the whole world blew up, <laughs> when it was declared that there was a female warrior in Birka, Sweden. And I even wrote a piece about it to kind of sort of take to task a few things, um, you know, some of the scholars, but even more though, for me, importantly, was the question of why do we really care? Why do we feel so invested in needing there to have been shield maidens so much mm. that, that this is going to get this much play? Uh, and then your book comes and it's just, I mean, it's such a good answer to that whole situation because it's just so reasonable. So thank you for that. No, oh, thank you so much. That's, that's, that's very kind. And uh, of course, I, I put a lot of work into that book and it's been quite a long time in the in the making because I actually wrote my first article about women and weapons in the in the Viking age back in 2013 or 2012 and I had been kind of circling around this topic uh, even even before that time uh, when I was working on my PhD between 2008 2012 and this just kind of this idea of women and weapons just kept growing and 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 and, and popping up uh, and the book was an opportunity to sum it all up and to uh yeah to give my own sort of personal impression of of the material and uh and this book as well as every other book that I've I've written in my career it's it's based on my first hand sort of experience of the of the material so I I actually I don't or hardly ever write about things that I have not seen with my own eyes. I actually take the effort to to go and examine the material in in, in various museum collections around Scandinavia and yeah the wider world. So uh, so it wasn't it wasn't just a literature based you know library based book. I I spent a lot of time in the archives and especially in Norway to uh, to actually look at the stuff and uh, and and and. Thank you for 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 saying that. So so, so meticulous, um, um, because I think it's really important to let the reader know about the data that is actually available and the data that is not available, and and about the quality of the data and about the the ways that people have acquired the data, which are often 
quite controversial and this is yeah this is also the case with with birka of course yeah i think what i what i definitely appreciated too was the the widening of it you know right mm. beyond the, the birka thing and and even the way you know to crafted the the title of it not to be like this is about women warriors or whatever which i know i mean you've you've written about women warriors for like peter at medievalist as i have myself in that medieval warfare magazine that they've had and you know trying to contextualize these people but it but it's broader than this and i have um my students which i'm like buried under grading right now of these chapter essays that they write because we put together an edited volume on the viking age and so i have even students where it's nothing about the women warriors per se but about like burial practices or something and i'm like here read this section out of leshek's book because it gives good information about all of the considerations we have to make when we talk mm. about things that we find buried with people and so it, it goes way beyond just the women and weapons type yeah. of issue yeah, yeah and so. I, I actually really enjoyed writing the there's a chapter that looks at the idea of the armed woman in in all kinds of cultural contexts. And of course, that chapter only, you know, just scratches the surface, but I, I wanted to show that, yeah, there, there are different manifestations of this idea across the globe from, from Africa through Europe to, to Asia and, uh, and different understandings of this, of this phenomenon. So that, that was a fun, fun chapter to write. And also different, I, I was particularly, you mentioned the war earlier, the first world war, but I, I'm, I'm also interested in the history of the second world war because it's just so relevant to well, yeah. to, to, to my world from to where i come from um but um in writing this this women and weapons book i i i dug into the the history of the warsaw uprising and uh, the histories of women who fought in that uprising and how they understood themselves and how you know you'd have women do exactly the same things and some of them would consider themselves as soldiers whereas others would just yeah see themselves as yeah, paramedics or just saw it as as their as their duty as their obligation as their patriotic you know concern to to try and help the best they can so yeah oh, the humility of the second world war generation yeah. a lot of yeah. times yeah. right like i was just doing my job you know yeah yeah yeah. Well, that was yeah. also used to justify a lot of atrocity. Yeah, you know, I was just following orders. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword, that one. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, so, okay, so with when we talk about a couple of things then with the Vikings in, in Slavic places, um, first off, you know, as the boundaries get drawn and redrawn and redrawn over, over history, so like maybe just contextualize for the audience when we say Vikings in Slavic lands, like where that would have been specifically mm -hmm. during the Viking age. And then speaking to the issue with the artifacts and stuff, uh, what, what types of things have been found in those places and how do they maybe differ or not from, you know, what we know about, say, the Western half of the Viking world? Yeah, sure. Um, let's start with the geography and the the ethnic ethnic problem. Um, so the Slavic world is is a is a pretty vast world, and the Slavs it's a it's a, it's a term that defines a, a very diverse ethnic group. And uh, the Slavs are essentially the I think they're actually the largest ethno-linguistic group in in Europe. And uh, and if we were to to look at the Slavs today, they can be divided into at least three branches so you have the western slavs you have the eastern slavs and you have the the southern slavs 
And all these Slavic groups back in the Viking Age uh, had various kinds of interactions with the Northern world. Um, what I do and what I specialize in is the Western Slavic world. And the Western Slavs essentially occupied an area from what is today northeastern uh, and northwestern Germany all the way to the borders, to the to, to, to today's borders of Poland and Russia and Belarus and Ukraine. Um, this is more or less the geographical span of the Western Slavic world. Now, anything to the east from today's borders of Poland, that is the Eastern Slavic world. So countries like Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, these the inhabitants of those territories back in the Viking Age would have been considered as the Eastern Slavs, and they are today also considered as the Eastern Slavs. And anything to the south from Slovakia and Czech Republic today, uh, the inhabitants of those areas would be would be regarded as the Southern Slavs. And the distinction between the Eastern and the Western and the Southern Slavs lies in, um, yeah, well, different different material culture, of course, certain differences in language, certain differences in uh, in religion and, and a religious expression. Um, one of the major differences between the Western Slavic world and the Eastern Slavic world is that uh, at the time of religious conversion, the Western Slavs accepted um, the Roman uh, Christianity, whereas whereas the, the Eastern Slavs accepted this Greek Orthodox um, way, and it is the dominant variant of Christianity still today in those in those areas. And this, of course, affected yeah culture, script, language, and and, and many many other things. So this is more or less roughly the the geography. Um, when it comes to the differences between the, the Slavic material culture and, and the Scandinavian material culture, well, there are there are many, uh, of course. Um, but but on the most basic level, I think the the sort of survival and subsistence strategies in the Slavic world and, and Scandinavia were not much different. And you could never really say that yeah, one cultural group was more civilized or advanced than than the other. They were all roughly at the same sort of civilizational level in in the Viking Age. Um, so, when the first Scandinavian Viking Age migrants came to to the territories of of, of what is today Poland, this was not a a barren land. This was already a land that had its um, its 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 culture, its architecture, it was not uninhabited. Um, so yeah, there was there was a lot going on already back back then. Do we uh, do we know what the etymology of the word Slav or the name Slav comes from? Yeah, that's that's a good question and, and an interesting one too. Um, there are different opinions about this, but I think at least to me, one of the more convincing ones is that the word Slav comes from the word. Uh, Słowo or Slovo in other Slavic languages. In Polish, it's Słowo. And the word Słowo means word. So it's basically, uh, it, it denotes people who can speak the same language, who, who know the word, who know 
how to communicate among themselves, which is really interesting because the Polish word for Germans is Niemcy, which means people who are uh, mute, who cannot speak, who <laughs> cannot speak our language. Hmm. So, uh, so yeah, it's it's about it's about yeah, the ability to communicate and the ability to communicate in the same uh, in the same speech, basically. Um, yeah, of course, I, I kind of assume that the that that your question goes to the the sort of synonymity of the word Slavs and slaves, um, because that that is also sometimes part of the debate. And there have been some suggestions that the term slave comes from the word Slav because there were so many Slavic slaves in the Viking Age. And that is possible. That is possible because human trafficking and trade in humans was a, was a widely practiced endeavor back in the Viking Age. And, uh, and uh, well, we have... We have uh, there's a lot of discussion uh, in in international academia, but also in Polish academia about how the first rulers of the of the founding dynasty, the Piast dynasty, managed to to organize their state and build all these magnificent strongholds, which we have thousands. And uh, yeah, one one answer to this is because yeah, slaves did it because <laughs> slavery was on such a such a high level in, in in this part of the world yeah no, especially among the vikings as we mm. as we exactly. continually exactly. expand upon it's uh that was that was a major driver of of their economy as we understand it uh yeah that forced labor yeah i think the the idea that the name slav contributed to basically the root of the word slave in english at least I'll say I don't think that's true in French. I think the the French word for slave is is a Latin root, but for English, yeah, there it's and that's generally an accepted accepted as fact. Oh yeah, I mean I've heard it thrown out there like it was just un you know hmm. consensus undisputed. But then you bringing up that oh maybe not you know oh well that's that's yeah, no, on par with everything we know about the Vikings. The root of the word yeah. is not is not that these people were were slaves and then right hence they are now called slavs it's the other way around right yeah yeah, yeah. it's the same yes. you know if you look at if you look at toponyms in uh, for example in in poland um there are place names that refer possibly that possibly refer to different ethnic groups that were settled in specific areas so there are for example settlements called prusy which uh, refers to the prussians the Baltic Prussians, yeah, from the Viking Age. Um, so yeah, there were there were slaves of different different ethnicities. There were Scandinavian slaves, Baltic slaves, Slavic slaves, you know, all kinds. Yeah. Yeah. If there's one thing we can say about the Vikings, they did not discriminate on who they brought in as, as slaves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the um, I think it's interesting to look at. I mean, we keep talking about the Viking Age as this singular thing. And I mean, for my money, like the more I study this, you know, and we all know we can look at any Google, any map about the Viking expansion and see how far and wide they went and into some of these areas east that you're talking about, but of course in the West as well. And I'm, I just think so much that there's, we, we should just be talking in terms of Viking ages. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Because there was just, 
there were different things going on in different parts of that world, even though, you know, the main, you know, protagonist or antagonist, who, depending on who you are, were these Norse people. But, you know, it's, it's, it's so difficult, I think, anymore to talk about like singular motivations, um, ways of being in the world, you know, what they were doing. I mean, obviously there are some commonalities in things, you know, as far as trade and like, so the slavery, the slaving issue is a big deal, I think. But I mean, some of it, it's just to me, like you're saying, I mean, in, in those more Eastern places there, I try to get my students to understand this as well. It's like, look at, you know, sort of isolated Lindisfarne versus places where trade networks have existed for thousands of years, yeah. you know, and, and it's multi-ethnic and multicultural and whatever so that they have to figure out different ways of being. I mean, I mean, the, the Vikings who went there. Um... The thing is that the more I, I research this, this part of history, the Viking age, the, the more I kind of begin to dislike the term Vikings and the Viking age. And I, I try not to use it when I, when I, in some of my latest writings, I, I almost hardly ever use the term Vikings. Um, and I, especially uh sort of this dislike this idea that the term viking has in the work of some scholars become synonymous with scandinavians or kind of exclusive for scandinavians i think it's uh it's a misunderstanding um of 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 the term um yeah and you said the viking age versus viking ages yeah because uh, well the world was vast. It was as it is today. And there were things going on in the West, in the East, in the North, in the South, on, on, on various scales. And I think also our um, impression of the role of Scandinavians in the so-called Viking Age is perhaps blown out of proportion. Um, it's not to say that it never happened or they never you know, invaded all those places, but but it, in in reading the text, we get this impression that it's you know these Norse people coming and attacking, and it's only them, and they are the you know uh, the, the the fury of the gods or whatever. Um, but it's mainly just because the sources to that, that that illuminate those events are are more sort of prominent or more easily accessible, or that they have simply survived to 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 our day. Um, and also because we have the wonderful, you know, Scandinavian Old Norse sagas and so on that that tell us so much about these these individuals, and we don't have the same kind of evidence for for other groups uh, that were equally um, warrior-like back back in the in the same period. And I'm I'm talking about yeah the Slavs, for instance, or the Baltic peoples, or all the nomads of of, of Eurasia. Um, yeah, they were they were also uh, a force to be reckoned with. I think. Mm. I love that point because we had a, a fantastic conversation with Dr. Matthew Panessi from um, well, I forget the university. Anyway, Ohio uh, Dominican. He's there, Ohio Dominican, and he right at the beginning of the conversation, he said that he had spent his entire. Now he hang on, but before I dive into that, he he so his focus is eighth and ninth century monasticism which is ground zero for Viking invasions from a Viking historian perspective, right? Mm. Like when I look at it, I think, oh, the Vikings were a big deal. And he said he spent his whole career ignoring the Vikings because <laughs> at the end of the day, they really didn't have much of an impact. 
they attacked a couple of monasteries on the coast out of thousands and thousands. There's just all this stuff going on. So really, were they were they that big of a deal? And to him, he he could make an entire career studying the victims of the Vikings without ever talking about the Vikings. I found that yeah. to be exactly. really interesting. Exactly. Well, and, and another thing is also the, you know, the the production of uh, of history, the modern production of history, historical writing, and uh, and the creation of the Viking myth, and 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 this Viking myth has been created mainly by, well. Germanic language speaking um, scholars. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, and this is also the, these are also the languages that are widely spoken today. And you know, there's a lot of publications about it. And obviously, they are writing about the situation in their respective geographical areas. Yeah, Scandinavia, England, um, and elsewhere. So uh, so yeah, that that also yeah. creates a certain image. Yeah, the anglocentrism of, of the anglocentrism the of, the Viking of Viking age. studies. I think that's yeah. yeah. We let's let's like be honest and open about this. this oh is... yeah, we we're honest about that all the time on this podcast, aren't we, CJ? Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm, so... I'm French, so I'm always frustrated by that. Where I go, yeah. yes, but in France we look at it very differently, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think I think Viking studies today um, needs to open up to a much bigger world that's a, that has always been out there, but has often been just ignored by yeah by 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 academia also due to various socio-political um reasons linguist the linguistic barrier and so on i think uh yeah you, you got to look outside the box mm -hmm. um yeah. yeah so we we um cj and i last week had a conversation was it last week already yeah i guess it was, it was. Um, yeah it seems like forever ago i'm still like on jet lag or something here um about you know why are the vikings so popular and mm. you know it's right at the time at the end of my my quarter my spring quarter here where that's my last lecture really is you know vikings in modern popular culture but also just sort of looking at how we look at them and how we engage with that past and you know like what you're saying talking about this the viking myth right i mean it's like at the beginning of the term, I'll be like, okay, well, if I say the word Viking, what do you think of? And of course, all these words come up that are just, you know, right in line with the Viking myth. And, and, and then it, I, we, so we talk about the fact that the sources are such that they are, and that, I um, mean, this is always what has intrigued me is that when there are gaps, which of course there are, um, we just fill ourselves into the gaps, right? Yeah. And want them to be, or create them to be what we, we would like. And um, CJ and I were both talking about how we really enjoyed the piece that you wrote, essentially about the historiography of the Polish scholars for this particular subject because it's like just like everything else it has shifted and changed with the tides and the times and the way even that they saw vikings was of course how we all are still doing it and that is whatever they needed them to be at the time um including i loved it you know in the more recent days where it's kind of like well we've emerged from you know the shadows of the post-war era and we're kind of trying to be our own thing we're like a century late on beginning to create the national myth you know where we were having to rebuild the national myth yeah. and so here we are we're like come on westerners we want to be you you know so let's latch on to the vikings like everybody else did <laughs> But uh, anyway, I mean, I think that's yeah, now, just... now there's a there's a Slavic turn. Uh, mm. That's that's the recent trend, I think. Now now we want to be we want to be more Slavic, I think. So are they all going to be Nor uh, Normanists now? Then <laughs> no no no. That the Vikings are out of the equation. It's just Slavs and Slavs. 
Oh, so okay. Oh, so now we're going to be into to, to Norse denial. <laughs> Nor Norse? No, no, no. That it's more that, like that actually... Slav Slavs are cool. I think that's that's. I think that's the. It's embracing your own, your yeah, own em self. embrace your own identity. Yeah. Well, oh, in the that's... Brittany region of France, the La Bretagne, and it was occupied for three decades by the Vikings, and that fact was very much ignored for a long time. No one wanted mm -hmm. to talk about it because it was a bit of a a national. Well, when I say national, I mean for the for the Bretons, because the the Brittany is ethnically and culturally Celtic. Versus, so it's there's a stark contrast between them and the rest of France, for example, and. So this idea that they had gained their independence from the Franks only to be invaded by the Vikings the next year, <laughs> you know, uh, they, uh, uh, so like the, I think the, the first historian to really dive into that was Jean-Christophe Cassel. He's at Quimper and he, he opened it up a little bit, but you know, that national narrative that, that Brittany had at least was like, oh, we fought back the Franks and everything. And so there was a bit of a Norse denial of like, you know, we, we were occupied again, yeah, and, mm -hmm. and that was more embarrassing because the 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 Bretons or the Bretons they, they they had repelled the Frankish invasions. So the Franks had never actually invaded. So they were very proud of this idea that, oh, we never succumbed to the weight of this new empire that came in. And when they they did become a protectorate, but after that they they gained full independence. And then they were actually physically occupied by the Vikings. Mm. It's a kind of a slap in the face. And nobody knew, I mean, as far as I knew, when I grew up, nobody ever knew anything about that, right? And it's it's been coming out recent scholarship. And I was challenged by somebody who's researching this in, in Western France right now, that there is more interest in research happening on this topic in particular now. But yes, for a long time, and, and it just follows those trends, right? So in Poland, kind of same thing, right? So they're recreating themselves there, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what's 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 happening now is that, um, well, for, first of all, I think um, there is a lot of new, very exciting archaeology that's just coming up. Um, also through, yeah, big scale excavation campaigns, but also through metal detecting endeavors that are gradually becoming more and more popular across Poland. And um, over the last couple of years, we have sort of begun to understand that the Slavs had a very kind of sophisticated um, animal style or zoomorphic art, mm. uh, which uh, only, you know, a couple of decades ago was thought to be something foreign, Scandinavian or something originating from uh, from Rus or from some nomadic tribes. Scholars were not quite, there, there was so little of it that scholars were not quite sure what to do with it. But we now know that this the style and this art that involves all kinds of um, animals, especially snakes and birds and cattle and horses, that this was something that that was produced by the Slavs uh, in the Viking Age and uh, and uh, infused with a lot of really interesting um, cosmological and cosmogonical ideas, and uh, and that's really cool. That's that's when the Slavs become become fascinating. Where are these things being found primarily? Uh, primarily in uh, the province of Greater Poland, as it is called. So the area around today's city of Poznań, that is Western, Central Western Poland. That's more or less the, the location. And this was also the place where the Piast state, so the state organized by the first ruling dynasty was born. Well, no surprise, because 
probably this art was in one way or another initiated by by the creators of the state or or, or somehow commissioned um, by them. Um, so this is where we find it, and we also find uh, find it in in Pomerania, that is the the coastal area along the Baltic coast, and this was an area that wasn't originally part of the Piast state, but the Piast were, of course, very interested in gaining access to the sea because that, of course, opened up a whole bigger world of trade and contacts. And also it was uh, the Baltic Sea was uh, was a motorway to to Scandinavia and and and, and other and other countries uh, or, or lands um, around um, around the, the, the sea. So, yeah, so we find it there as well, but mainly in greater Poland. And so it's kind of uh, visually, I, I mean, I haven't seen any of the pieces, but like visually. I, I have one here. It's a, it's oh, a record. Really? Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. cool. So it's something something like this. This is one of the most right now iconic objects that we can. It, it is a spur. Yes, it, yeah, is, yeah. it is a spur. Wow. It's, okay. Uh, what? Who made this for you? <laughs> I, I know people who make yeah, beautiful know. things. This one was made by by an artist uh, called Tomasz Czyszczoń. He's a professional wow. reenactor and a professional jeweler, and wow. uh, and I commissioned this object from him. Um, and it's based on a, on an original find uh, from Pomerania, actually, from a Viking Age, tenth, eleventh century cemetery in a place called Ciepłe. Um not not far away from Gdańsk, if you if you know yeah, yeah, Gdańsk, yeah. it's yeah. it's a little bit to the south from from Gdańsk. Okay, well, so, so it's, makes... it's made of copper alloy, and it has these little bells that produce yeah, yeah. Yeah. sound, and a lot of animals. So you can see a, a horse on the goad, and you can see cattle on yeah. the arms of the spur. Then on the strap, you can see. Some bird-like creatures, oh, which yeah. I actually yeah. think are not really birds, but they're a kind of animal hybrid um, creatures that combine the, the the properties of snakes and birds. So that's like a flying serpent type of uh, type. Of Those thing. are called dragons, Leszek. Yeah. <laughs> in in the Slavic world, they they can be called dragons, but there's also a very specific term for them in in folklore, and this is uh, the term is zmi. And this is a this is a, a snake that flies, but it also combines elements of uh, of the physique of birds, or especially especially eagles. So it's like a snake it could be a snake with eagle eagle hmm. wings or feathers. So um, yeah, yeah, cool that's interesting. You have a, Go ahead. You have the slider with oh. a swastika motif. So that's probably the sun. Because the the interpretation of the entire object is that it's a uh, it's not only a well high status item, but it's also a kind of a, a early medieval Viking Age Slavic comic book, and uh, and I, I I don't know if we can get in into details here, but but in short, I think it's a model of the Slavic cosmos or how they imagined their their world and especially the the afterlife. So the horse here. Is a creature that that tra travels between the worlds and is a carrier of souls. And in Slavic belief, horses had this capacity to to transport uh, man, in many cultures actually to transport souls into the other world. Um, and the, the 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 cattle here 
probably on an island because you can see this wavy pattern. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're representations of human souls on an island in the other world. Um, and then this part here, the, the strap is the horizon and the disc with the swastika is obviously the sun that travels <laughs> up and down and up and down. So it's the wow. cycle of life. So there's a, there's a lot of cool stuff going on here. Ah, yeah, that's pretty amazing. Because I was going to ask, without seeing, seeing that, I was going to ask about, you know, just the, the visual nature of it when you're talking about sort of the the, the more kind of pan-Germanic, you know, Hiberno-Saxon, you know, animal interlace, all of that kind of stuff that it is a, a lot of art from that period of time, not just Viking or Norse or what have you, but uh, um, the, the, the little wavy bit on the bottom kind of reminds me. Yeah. A lot of yeah, that. this the interlace uh, motif. It's yeah. it's it's a it's a popular motif, but this this particular design is a design that we can we can associate with with the Western Slavic uh, world, and then in the Romanesque art, it also appears. So it has a it has a pretty pretty wide um, span, so to say. Yeah. Okay, so, so I wait. Our... Go ahead, go ahead, CJ. I just wanted to ask uh, briefly, you know, with with uh, the Vikings, for example, their cosmology, we have sagas that help to inform us. Where where does our understanding of the Western Slavic cosmology come from? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And uh, well, where where does it come from? Um, I think it also comes from our imagination today, largely because, um, of course, it's a it's a it's a bit of a joke, but uh, but of course. It, the sagas and the the eddas they provide us with the best um, sort of textual uh, evidence of possible Norse beliefs and 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 their understanding of the of the cosmos of the gods the stories of the gods and so on, and unfortunately we don't have anything like that for the Western Slavic world. There are no Western Slavic eddas or Western Slavic sagas, uh, and the reason is that. Many of these, these these Slavs in the Viking Age were either illiterate or unwilling to record their their, their stories in 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 writing. Um, so all we know about their belief system comes from the writings of external observers. That is Christian clergy uh, who often. Uh, well, seem to misunderstand things or just manipulate them in one way or another, and often speak of the the, the Slavic religion in sort of sort of dismissive uh, way and 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 condemning it uh, because, of course, they're Christians, so they cannot uh, cannot say anything nice about pagan beliefs and and, and pagan practices. And then we also have some information from Arabic sources, and then. All we can rely on is the archaeology, which, as you can see, is quite evocative in itself, and then from folklore. So basically, when I said it, our knowledge of, of Slavic beliefs comes from our imagination. It's yeah, the imagination of scholars who try to put all these scattered and very fragmented sources together. So you have these, these very patchy uh, medieval Latin Arabic texts that say a little bit about it, then uh, then we have the archaeology and then we have folklore. But of course, the, the, the folkloristic material is very late. It's very far removed from the reality it claims to describe. So you know, these are sources from the 19th and 20th century. Uh, 
and you have to always be very careful in in in, in using them. Um, in trying to reconstruct the, the the sort of the basic myths, uh, most researchers who focus on Slavic religion they 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 kind of talk about this one um, origin myth or the genesis myth, um, which appears in folklore in 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 sort of convoluted forms. But of course, all these folkloristic accounts they don't include uh, the names of Slavic deities that we know from medieval texts. Instead, they substitute them for Christian names. So instead of, let's say, the god Herun and the Veles, you have the god and the devil. Uh, and that is that is how they how they deal with it. So so the Slavic myths that we have in folklore are Christianized or are mm. clad in Christian clothes. So you first have to peel this layer and then try and dig deeper and deeper into them to get the gist of it. Um, yeah. But the, the, the belief system was definitely quite uh, quite elaborate and quite sophisticated. So like in Scandinavia, they had a whole variety of, of gods responsible for different things. Then there was a, there was a whole world of supernatural beings that could do things for you or, or against you. Um, yeah, and, and then people practiced all kinds of rituals to, in one way or another, address or control these these forces. And uh, yeah, these 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 this could include acts of sacrifice and uh, and yeah, worship. Yeah. So, are most of the artifacts that are being found uh, over there? primarily grave goods or is it are you're not having any sort of like they do in England you know metal detectorists to sort of you know finding hordes or whatever just in farmers fields but these are actual like graves mm. something well the finds that we have come from from different contexts so obviously graves are one of the best sources that we have the the major difference between the the slavic burial custom or the Western Slavic burial custom and the Scandinavian burial customs at large is that Slavic graves are as a rule poorer in terms of the number of or the types of objects that that end up in in, in graves. So there's, there's there's fewer finds, especially finds of metal. Um, we don't really know why. Maybe there was some sort of a taboo, maybe these finds were, were sort of circulated or distributed among the mourners. We don't have, uh, we usually don't find graves as rich as those that are normally found in, for instance, in Viking Age Norway, where you have swords and several shields and spearheads, and, and that is the standard. That, that is not the standard in the Western Slavic world. That is a, a an exceptional thing. Um, but then, yeah, we we have finds, of course, also from from settlement contexts and from uh, from strongholds, and these include objects of metal, or various metals, and clay and wood. Um, quite a lot of interesting material over the last years has been found in in water watery uh, contexts, so lakes especially, and there seems to have been a a practice among the Western Slavs, which involved depositing weapons in in lakes. Uh, we, we don't really know how and why. Um, this could be the result of some sort of battle on the lake in winter on, over a frozen lake. But uh, 
but I think it's more likely that people deliberately would throw um, expensive military equipment in, in into into lakes and rivers. Um, but again, we don't really know why. Is it to yeah to gain something from the gods or supernatural beings? Is it an act of thanksgiving? Uh, one of my ideas is that we could be actually looking at at a, at a practice related to to funerals, that this could be some sort of an extension of, of, of the funerary practice where you don't bury the same objects in, in the grave, in the ground, but you somehow have to send them to the other world through water. Or even that you actually cremate your dead and then deposit their cremains together with all the metal stuff that they they may have needed or used in life or may need in the afterlife and you, you throw it into the water. Um, but we will never know. But what, what we do know is there is a lot of really nice stuff in lakes. Um, yeah. That doesn't make, yeah, because I was just going to say, it just reminded me of like, you know, these scenes in TV movies and stuff where, you know, like some person's doing some illicit, you know, like drug dealing or whatever, then they get rid of their burner cell phone <laughs> and they throw it in the river or something. Yeah. I mean, it's a way to like get rid of unwanted yeah, contraband. But back in those times, I mean, if you had decent weapons, like, wouldn't you be kind of stupid to be just mm. tossing them in the water, right? Which yeah, then exactly. to me suggests that there's, yeah, something more important going on there. Like yeah, there's, there's just too much. There's too much of this material. There's there's one lake uh, known as the Lednica Lake, which is about 50 kilometers to the west from Poznań. And uh, it actually has the largest collection of Viking Age weapons from a single uh, site in Europe. And the, these, these, these are just hundreds of axes, spearheads, swords. There's a complete chain mail, a helmet. It's just too much. And they're sometimes found in, 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 in interesting configurations. Sometimes they're sort of almost stacked. So it's um, it was definitely deliberate, premeditated, and, and uh, yeah, happening over uh, an extended period of time. And it's a body of water that you know was there in existence at the time. Yeah, not yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. So it wouldn't it's... have been like this. Is this was the weapons manufacturing plant, and then they built it. And yeah. then flooded. No, it's but there, there, there are several islands on the lake, and uh, the largest island had one of the major Piast strongholds, um, known as Ostrov Lednitsky, and this was also the place where uh, Mieszko, uh, Duke Mieszko, so one of the first historical rulers of, of Poland, and then his son, Bolesław the Brave, they, they had their seat there, their, their estate, so to say. So this was a, a very important place on the, on the map. Um, and the, the island was connected with the mainland by means of at least two really long and, and elaborately built bridges. And the bridges were so wide that you could actually have two wagons that would you know pass pass by almost like a you know a long wooden motorway across the lake um so this was this was an important seat of power and uh what is interesting is that the lake is not very deep so it's it's about i don't know 15 meters uh, or 18 meters at best so if you're a, if you're a good diver yeah. you could free dive and pick your weapons from the <laughs> bottom of the lake if you if you happen to lose something um, but some, somehow they never did that, that the weapons stayed. 
Wow, that's really interesting. So how long ago was when were these things found? Oh, the, the the excavation campaigns there it's like an ongoing project. So so archaeologists come back every year and there's a big museum uh, that has recently been rebuilt and renovated. Um, so there there the, are underwater archaeological campaigns every single year and practically every year they find something new. Was this like so original much. digs, like some of them in the West, like in the 19th century or yeah. something? Yeah, yeah, okay. it's a regular, okay. it's a regular, uh, regular dig. Because I was going to say, I mean, when you earlier you mentioned okay, now, like the more recent kind of focus is Slavic, uh, and but then it seems like wow, if you've got all this interesting stuff there, and you can kind of just start to really sort of dive into it in maybe some more meaningful ways, then and that that's the point when when scholars do decide now we're not interested in that anymore. Um, what do you think is well, the, the Slavic thing? The the place is really interesting, and this this area is really interesting because there are actually some um, very high status Scandinavian uh, items um, found in, in, in both in the lake and also on, on land, so to say. And uh, one, of, one of the more interesting finds, uh, we talked about graves earlier. Uh, there's a grave in a cemetery that is on the shore of the lake. So not on the island, but the, on the shore of the lake. So about 50, 100 meters from from the island on the shore and uh, it's a it's a it's chamber grave of a woman um and she was buried with uh, with a very elaborate silver necklace that consisted of a number of so-called captorgas we call them and these are little silver boxes sometimes to boxes that you can open and you can store amulets or you can store incense or herbs or whatever you feel like storing in them uh, but among those evidently Slavic um, amulets, uh, there was also one pendant in the shape of a cross. And it's it's a type that we know uh, from Scandinavia, and it's, it's a so-called cross-shaped pendant. And these pendants were most likely produced in Denmark during the reign of Harald Bluetooth. And there have been some suggestions among scholars that these were not your ordinary pieces of jewelry, but that these were things that would be distributed widely among allies and among people with whom the king or his members of his court shared some diplomatic ties. And this is very interesting in the context of, yeah, the the, the chronology of the site and the the relations that existed between the Piasts and the Yelling dynasty. Um, we don't quite know who this woman was, but having this kind of object as part of her elaborate necklace that, that indicates that, well, she was someone important and probably with some ties to, uh, to the Scandinavian Danish ruling elite. Mm. Um, so that's, that's an interesting find. And there are, there are, at least two other cross-shaped pendants like this, also from the same region of Poland. So this also again attests to to some contact on a very high um, high level, on on an elite level. Have they been uh, done doing the like the analysis of her, like you know, isotopic or something else that they they know she's a Slavic? Uh, not not yet, unfortunately. But um, this is. This is a possibility. Yeah, this is this is a possibility for for future research. Um, 
I would. I. I, I don't know. I. I don't want to. I. I don't want to guess. But if I were to guess, I. I'd say she's probably a, a local. Uh, because of the most of the amulets that she has are sort of very diagnostically Slavic. This is not something a, a Scandinavian person would wear, but someone who probably had some ties to to Scandinavia, either through marriage or political connections. Yeah. Wow, that's super interesting. Well, while we're on the the subjects of uh, of graves and various uh, artifacts being found. From you know, say it's a Slavic grave, but we're finding so-called you know Viking. It's a kind of a interesting hybrid of yeah. Yeah, a hybrid. So the it brings up a, a an interesting, and I think this is on topic with the title of this podcast. So at risk of making Peter Griffin laugh because I'm going to repeat the title uh, in the podcast. I don't know if if you don't watch Family Guy, you won't get the joke. But <laughs> it's, uh, no, I don't. I'm sorry. It, Oh, it's it, anyway, it's it, whenever you hear the title of a movie in the movie, you know, and it makes him laugh and, you know, anyway. <laughs> so, um, but, uh, uh, so there's the, the grubbing colony, which is in, in what modern day Estonia or Latvia, one of those two, uh, the, and they have the, it, what's one of the interesting features of, of that find is they have a, an eastward expansion of Swedes that then early in the Viking age, they have different different graves with different dates and the early earlier graves are more farmers families women children etc and then later in the viking age there's more there's a higher and higher percentage of warrior graves until until they essentially dominate the graves at that at you know for that site which tells us that there was a a growing militaristic eastward expansion and this would have affected the eastern slavs um you know the establishment of kevin Rus, etc as far as the western slavs are concerned um what uh what so there is a, a a modern tendency to look more at the slavs as you mentioned but what can we say about the viking age scandinavian influence of what is now modern poland we'll you know we'll say the the western mm. slavs and uh and i'm and i'm gonna say it how did the Vikings change Poland? <laughs> they did. They didn't. Um, <laughs> that's that's the simple. That's the simple answer. But um, yeah, to 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 be a to be more serious, um, the strongest traces of Scandinavian presence that we can see in the archaeological record um, are known from the coastal areas. So from from places like Volin, which was an important port of trade in the Viking Age, um, which in some ways is probably associated with the famous saga of the Joms Vikings, which talks about this um, fearless brotherhood of, of warriors who resided somewhere in their own fortress, somewhere on the southern coast of the Baltic. Um, then if you travel further east along the Baltic coast, um, you will find a very interesting site in more or less central Pomerania. And this site is known as Fjellubie. In German, it was called Zfilip. And this is a Viking Age cemetery, a very early one uh, with, uh, with material from the 9th and 10th centuries. And you mentioned the site of Grobinia earlier and the, 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 the presence of female graves. Well, this is also something that we see here because among approximately 100 graves, those that have been excavated so far, and not the whole site has not been fully excavated, but those that have been excavated are actually 
graves with Scandinavian, evidently Scandinavian objects, the majority of which are actually female objects. So we have uh, oval brooches, there is a trefoil brooch, there are other items associated with with the feminine sort of costume and the, the, the female sphere, and no weapons at all, or almost no weapons at all. There's uh, there's a, a shield boss and a fragment of a shield uh, shield handle. So this also tells us something about maybe the first waves of migrants, uh, Viking Age uh, migrants to the south southern uh, Baltic coast, that they were perhaps not interested in invasion but maybe more interested in settlement and trade uh, and in informing, yeah, small diasporic communities. And I would argue that what we can see in in Shpialupia, but also to a certain extent in, in Volin, these are little Scandinavian diasporas and sort of pockets um, on the southern, southern coast. And then if you go even further to the east, uh, towards Gdańsk, and Elblanc, uh, then you will eventually come to this place known as Truso, uh, a place that also appears in the writings of uh, the Anglo-Saxon um, traveler Wulfstan. He he talks about the settlement of Truso, and uh, and Truso has been found and then I think positively identified as Truso um, on the shores of a, of a lake to the south from Elblanc, and this is a a, a very large settlement, uh, probably possessing a sort of semi-circular rampart in the style of Hedeby, if you know of, uh, yeah. of, the, of yeah. the structure of Hedeby. It's kind of similar to, to Hedeby with a lot of Scandinavian uh, material from the 9th and 10th century, uh, especially Scandinavian metalwork. These are the, these three places, I would say, so Volin, Shvielubia, Truso are, are some of the main places of Scandinavian activity uh, in the Viking Age uh, in what is today Poland. Um, and then if you look at the, the southern part of the country or the central part of the country, at least at the present moment, we don't really have many Scandinavian style objects from that area, which can mean different things. It can mean, on the one hand, well, they were not interested, or the settlement was too dense, or um, the population was too fierce and they just couldn't um, couldn't invade. Um, or it can simply mean that this is the sort of archaeological status quo, and we still just haven't found yeah. the material that is that is there. And I I lean kind of to the to the latter version because. Um, in contrast to what is going on in, in Scandinavia or the British Isles, uh, with extensive metal detecting campaigns run by amateurs and professionals, metal detecting is still not a popular thing in Poland. And also the law uh, concerning metal detecting is not as liberal as it is in Scandinavia. So in in many regards, metal detecting is regarded as an illegal activity, uh, unless you have special permissions from, from uh, appropriate authorities. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we know, uh, for example, based on, on, on the fines from Denmark uh, and England, metal detecting can dramatically change our understanding of Viking Age yeah. 
Scandinavian, especially presence, settlement, activity, and so on. Because these are the finds that, yeah, get left behind when they set up a camp or they travel and so on. Without metal detecting, it just disappears from, from the radar. We have uh, metal detecting communities um, in, in Poland um, that are either working legally or semi-legally, but it's it's interesting that most of these, these societies are actually not interested in prehistoric or medieval material. They're actually interested in Second World War stuff. Oh, so, right. you know, belt buckles and badges and all this, you know, paraphernalia. Um, so sometimes, sometimes the anything that's that's sort of older than the Second World War or the early modern times gets discarded or ends up in somebody's drawer, and uh, and that is a big problem because among those finds there can also be finds um, of Scandinavian, for instance, type. Um, but when we're talking about the possible uh, presence and and um, activity of Vikings per se from Scandinavia in Poland, I would say that the best traces of them are actually in the form of so-called sword scabbard shapes. So this is the the decorative element that that is attached to the lower end of the sword scabbard, and they were often beautifully decorated, sometimes with uh, with zoomorphic motifs or with yeah, anthropomorphic motifs. Um, and we have objects like that scattered basically from the north to the south of the country. Um, and these things, they were most likely traveling with people and with warriors. I don't think these were things that people would trade with. Um, this is something that, that just, you know, the detaches and falls and is get, gets left behind. So if you map them, you can nicely track the different possible routes they may have taken in the Viking Age. And uh, yeah, for, for warriors, mercenaries, traders, um, Poland was, was, I think, an interesting area because you have at least two big rivers that take you all the way from, from the Baltic Sea to the south, and then you can travel by land to the big markets of, for instance, Prague or Kiev. Uh, so you have in the west, you have the Oder River. So the river that today divides roughly uh, Poland and Germany in some, in some parts. And then you have the Vistula River that cuts Poland in more or less in half. Um, and you can, take, you can take the Vistula River all the way from the Baltic to Krakow, which yeah, was another uh, important place on the map. And from Krakow to, uh, to Kiev, it's not that far. You can take, you can take horses, you can take wagons, you can walk. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I was thinking there must that. be more, there must be more of this material, but, yeah, but to come back, to come back to your question, what did Scandinavians Vikings, Scandinavian Vikings do for Poland? They, they were certainly not the founders of the state. I, even though such such theories existed back in the 19th century, there's no historical, textual, archaeological evidence for that whatsoever. Um, every once in a while, we have amateur historians who try to to argue that yeah, you know, the official vision is, of history is wrong and that Mieszko was a Scandinavian Viking. But yeah, yeah, there's 
just no way to prove this. I think it's interesting looking at the map, um, you know, just thinking of what you just said of like, there's got to be so much that just hasn't been found yet. Okay. If it if it's there, because it just it just seems so obvious to me, you know, as much activity that we we even know about in that sort of eastward direction, that you know, like go like north to Staria Ladoga, you know, and then down, you know, it comes straight through Poland. I mean, it just it's yes. just right there. It just seems to me like it would have been an extraordinarily well trodden path, you know. Mm. Um, and it actually, it gets to also like something else that I've been thinking about that I wanted to ask your opinion on. And, and it's related to this issue of settlement that you were talking about in the CJ's question and stuff. And that is the issue that comes up with my students and stuff about using the word colonialism and col mm -hmm. colonists for, for the Vikings, which I... I'm 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 digging my heels in on that. I'm pretty much staunchly like no, the, the, because mostly because the, I understand with my students the way they're using it is it's freighted with you know what colonialism has come to mm. mean just, just from the last 500 years, right? And so then it's like, well, if the Vikings are going to be part of European history, well, that's part of European history, and I'm like, yeah, but that's anachronistic in my mind to like put that on them. It's like in I'm in Iceland where you know it's like. Norse were the indigenous people here. So how do you how do you call that colonialism in the same vein as talking about Christopher Columbus or something? Mm. And so I prefer my students to use the term settlement or colony as in its literal meaning of right, just a settlement essentially. But yeah. what do you think about that as far as the sort of political and ideological baggage of that with Vikings? I've, I've just completed a, a new book called The Vikings in Poland, which is actually my habilitation uh, thesis. So. Uh, a book you write to become a professor. Um, and I, I don't use the word colonizers or colonists or colonies at all in, in this book when talking about Scandinavian presence in Poland. And I, I, I talk about yeah, migrants, as you say, settlers. I think these, these are terms that are more neutral and not, not as charged with meaning as, 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 as colonists or colonizers. Um, or I use the term diaspora. I think I, I, I actually really like uh, Judith Yesh's um, book, the, the Viking Diaspora. Although I would, I know why it's Viking Diaspora because it's just a catchy title. But I, I kind of would say, yeah, Norse Diaspora or Scandinavian Diaspora. I think that's that's uh, safer yeah. um, to use that that, that term. And uh, and the way she defines diasporas or the features of of diasporas. Um, using the work of, of of sociologists, I think, yeah, that that is nicely that that's something that you can nicely transfer or transpose onto the situation of the the Viking Age. So these are, yeah, migrant societies that form, uh, build new homes basically in a in a foreign environment that interact with the locals in various ways, sometimes in peaceful ways, sometimes in hostile ways, sometimes there's trade involved, that after a while they perhaps form, yeah, hybrid identities where they, yeah, in one way adapt and in one way change and use certain elements of, of, of that, yeah, new area, new culture where while maintaining others, I think the yeah, diasporic communities. I think that is something that uh, 
that we can talk about when talking yeah. about yeah Scandinavian presence in in Poland. Yeah, Although to play and, devil's and advocate, places. Terry, I was okay. just gonna <laughs> to, to play devil's advocate. Uh, thinking of the Viking Age warrior culture, which parallels other cultures at the time. Let's say the Franks, right? They had a a, a very strong warrior culture. The we know historically militaristic societies are inherently expansionist because how they keep their retinues on board is by conquering gaining wealth from that you can't contain a militaristic society in a geographic area because they will just eat themselves alive and so thinking back to the Jomsvikings, vikings for example or you know all this uh, all of these piece of evidence that we have for a strong militaristic culture in Scandinavia, it makes sense to me that part of that diaspora was driven by a cultural imperative to conquer, which mm. so then if we take that and, and, uh, you know, bring back the word colonialism, it's not too far off. I don't think that, uh, you know, I think so maybe like conquering or like expansionism, uh, those would be words that we could apply to that. Um, I'm with you, Terry. I don't think, I think colonialism sp refers to a very specific place, you know, in time, which I don't think is applicable to the Vikings at all. But in terms of, you know, the, the word diaspora, I think apply is, is, uh, applicable for say Iceland, Greenland, you know, places that were yeah, the coast of Ireland, but in other places where it was a hostile takeover, uh, perhaps not as applicable. I, I'm just trying, I'm just playing a little bit of devil's advocate there, but <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's probably also a uniquely kind of American perspective as well, especially yeah. you know from my students' point of view, and especially when they run into in the academy nowadays. You know, in, in my mind, you know, kind of trendy things like you know post-colonial studies or whatever, where it's just it becomes it, for me, and this is just a personal opinion, it just becomes this kind of trope. Then where there then there's sort of just trained to think, oh, this is how Europeans acted in the pre-modern world. And it's all sort of bad white people versus, you know, good brown people and, you know, the takeover. And, you know, so that the, that the sort of the interaction with the indigenous peoples is, you know, definitely part of giving, you know, colonialism. It's, you know, all the freighted. Yeah, one of, in fact, one of the um, features of diasporas that, that Judith Yesh mentions in, in, in the book um, is if I remember correctly, it, it is also a, a, a troubled relationship with host societies. So it can still right. be a diaspora and can have a sort of troubled relationship. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which can be a ho hostile, of course. Um, I think it's in, in the archaeology, it's much easier to find traces of something that looks peaceful, a peaceful settlement, than to find traces of conflict. Um, um, especially conflict between societies, different different ethnic groups or cultural groups, um, especially in this in this part of the world. And then, how do you archaeologically argue for, for 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 conflict? You'd have to find yeah a mass grave, for example, yeah chopped up bodies, uh, a burnt stronghold. But then, how can you know who burnt it? You know, you you often can't because also it's also difficult. Um, in talking about yeah central western europe because you often cannot distinguish warriors from one army from those from the other army because they use exactly the same equipment 
uh, and that that is interesting because that's something I may maybe should have mentioned earlier. Um, the Western Slavic uh, military equipment is no different to the, the equipment used in in Scandinavia or the British Isles or Francia. It's it's exactly the same. Um, if you look further to the east, it, it's more eastern. Yeah, among the eastern Slavs, it has these nomadic traits. But the Western Slavic uh, weaponry is is exactly the same. So you don't know whose arrowhead this was. You know, where where were the Slavs attacking themselves or were they attacked by Scandinavian Vikings? You cannot tell. There's no way of knowing this. See, and then um, it gets so that it's less easy to, you know, reduce things down to this very sort of yeah. simplified binary of the good or the, you know, the bad guys came in and yeah, did this yeah. good guys. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting, I think, in, in the context of, you know, this, again, this colonial d discussion of, um, there's never really a lot of um, nuanced discussion or understanding that the people who are the, um, the the victims supposedly of that kind of colonialist expansion are oftentimes, you know, doing similar types of things within their own communities as to what the outsiders, you know, so come in and do to them, you know, and for us again here in, or in America, the perspective with the Native Americans, I, I told my students like, I've done a lot of research into the, like the Native American tribes in the region where I live in the Pacific Northwest and particularly the Chinook tribe. I mean, I could swap out Chinook for Norse and there are so many similarities in how those cultures were existing as far as the types of social hierarchies, the chieftain level status, uh, frequent raiding, enslavement, you know, what would constitute sort of conquest and colonial activity of one tribe over a neighboring tribe, you know, all of it. Um, and, and yet, you know, in my frustration, it's kind of like, well, but the Europeans, you know, they just are, they were just worse. They were, they were, you know, they're just the uber colonialists, you know, and the poor peaceable people over here just trying to live their lives. And here come the Vikings. And it's like, no, no, it's just not that simple. Yeah. One, one thing that we, we have to also remember and that, that is often played down is that it's not only that. Scandinavians went somewhere and raided and settled. It's also other groups from Europe that did exactly the same thing. Yeah. And uh, and then yeah, Slavs and the Baltic people were among them. You had Baltic uh, pirates as well. You had Slavic pirates as well. There's a, there's extensive Slavic settlement in southern Scandinavia, in, in southern Sweden, on the Danish Isles. There are place names that are evidently Slavic. There is high status and low status Slavic uh, material culture. So it, the, the connections went both ways, I think. And, uh, and I think what, what, what we need to do is we have to, uh, I think, I would argue for that at least, that we have to abandon this vision that, you know, the only the Scandinavian Vikings were the sort of, you know, uh, leaders of this, uh, this 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 martial militaristic uh, world, and that they were they were the ones pulling all the strings. I think that is that is a very biased view. Yeah. We've um, we've talked a lot about that, you know, going back to Western Europe, which is uh, uh, with the Franks, a Germanic yeah. tribe, very uh, militaristic, and in fact, one of the one of the reasons for the you know the beginning of the so-called viking age 
at least in Western Europe, one of the theories is that there was some kind of political retribution, right? Because the leader of the Saxon army that was put down by Charlemagne and then forcibly baptized and drowned in the river, uh, it was Widukind, who was he was brother-in-law to the King Siegfried of of Denmark, right? So, so these they, these people all knew each other and they were all yeah, fighting exactly. each other. So it's a, it's not like you know, and I and they I, changed, I always... they, they changed alliances and they you know they intermarried. It was a yeah, especially on elite level, it was such a such a mishmash and such a such a such a yeah cultural mix. Yeah, they all shared in yeah. common trade of opportunism. Mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah, right. Opportunism, glory, and the desire to be remembered in one way or another. Yeah, that was yeah. I was on. Uh, what? Uh, oh gosh, what is that platform online where you ask questions? Quora. Um, yeah. Quora. There we go. I don't know why I can think of that today. All right. Uh, good morning, everyone. <laughs> I'm finally here. Uh, no, I was on Quora. This was a couple of years ago, and somebody asked the question: Why are the Why were the Vikings more violent than everybody else? Yeah. And I, I went what in there and gave mean? them this nice long answer of they weren't. <laughs> in fact, they may have been less violent <laughs> because it was an age of violence. Everybody was killing everybody. Everybody was trying to, I mean, we we just, you know, they, they show up on the world stage pretty much right, right towards the end of, of multiples of centuries of Germanic tribes conquering everything else. Right. So it's just then, one more wave, you know. Yeah, as as, as an archaeologist and someone who specializes in the study of burials, uh, and I've looked at, you know, thousands of burials in, from different parts of Europe. And I my my question, if if this was such a violent time, well, where is the violence in the burial record? It's not really there, actually. Because the majority of the skeletal remains that we find they don't have any traces of of trauma inflicted by sharp uh, bladed weapons where where are all the where are all the bodies from all these invasions and from all you know all these raids and and so on where where are they they're not there or they're, they're they are occasionally found yeah you have these mass graves you know repton and so on but these are these are just you know little points on the map, but oh mass, where 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 is that? It's it's just not there. I think that's funny to be getting back kind of full circle yeah. into the to the Burka grave, you know, because yeah. that's obviously one of the things that they've said about that, right? Well if she's this warrior, why doesn't she have any evidence of Yeah, any of course. I mean there's there's many ways you can die in battle and the that you know a deadly wound does not have to affect bone. It can be a flesh right. wound and you can just bleed out or they can right uh, strangle you or something yeah uh, but still one for a, for a theoretically a violent time that we think viking the viking way age was there's yeah. really not so so much evidence of violence right i would expect there to be much more but there, there isn't really yeah actually you know that's kind there's of evidence another... of a martial culture yeah they, they're making they're producing yeah. weapons yeah they're producing weapons um, if you look at the Slavic worlds, there are literally thousands, thousands of strongholds. Um, so that tells us something, that it's a martial society, that it's organized, that you have to have people to build these things uh, for you. Probably they're not doing it willingly. They are probably yeah, doing slave work. Um, but yeah, where, where is 
real, you know, in the in your face evidence of of violence. No, not I so think much. it gets to so many of the assumptions, you know, that we were talking about earlier too, and you know, mentioning that having referred my students to that section of your your book about women and weapons, and just how do you interpret these things that you mm. find as well, and um, Dave, you know, David Zori. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so he, he's a friend of mine, and we, we were having this conversation about actually a grave that was found here in Iceland, where I am, and where he worked for many years. And it, you know, the, the the assumptions that kind of get repeated. And I noticed you mentioned that even in, in your historical historiographical essay about you know scholars, you know, sort of like, oh, yeah, there's this this is the party line, and we kind of repeat it. And CJ and I have talked about this with other guests as well. And um, the, the grave gets found. And it's got a fully intact skeleton and then two other bodies with it who have um, been decapitated. And so then it's kind of like, okay, it's the usual trope. Then what we say there is those were slaves who were killed to go, you know, with this other person into the afterlife. And I was joking with, with David because he was kind of, you know, talking about it like that. And I said, you know, we have this thing in the United States called a good old fashioned murder suicide. It's like, uh -huh. I was like, we know where the grave is, David and I. It's in this kind of far-flung, really isolated place in Iceland, which is isolated enough as it is. And I'm like, what if you just got tired of that existence or, you know, a famine was happening and you're like, we're just not going to make it or something, right? And so then whoever the leader of that household was just decided, I'm just going to be humane and take you out. <laughs> by cutting off your head and here I'm kind of joking mm. like this would be funny, but do you know what I mean? It's just like, it just gets so much to this idea of interpretation and how we kind of jump to some of these conclusions. But like you said, where is the evidence of the violence or necessarily that these were people who were enslaved, you know, that got killed mm. this way to go to the afterlife? I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I would push back a little bit and say, I think anytime there's a, a martial culture uh, there's a presumption of violence, you know, to start, I'd say with the, the Franks, at least that was, there was a lot of violence and they bragged about it. They, they wrote about every, you know, their battles and, you know, like, uh, uh, there's one battle in, uh, 841 for is a battle of succession. The, the battle of Fontenoy and Puisay where, you know, some historians think, you know, a third of the entire landowning gentry was killed in that battle, right? So there was there was a lot of, there was a lot of violence, at least in Western Europe, you know, and then if you go to, to England, every couple of years, there's another mass grave that's uncovered. I think there's one at Weymouth, there's one at uh, Repton. So we're finding more and more of these things. So that, but, but to, to your point, um, you know, you've seen thousands and thousands and thousands of graves, and I just pointed out two, right? So, so proportionally, we're not. It's not, it's not, not to say that there was no violence, but perhaps yeah. we we just in thinking about the Vikings and the Viking Age, we, we again, as I say, we kind of blow it out of proportion. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. we know that, like, uh, just to draw a parallel with other parts of history, if we go back to the ancient Greeks and they had their, you know, the hoplites and the the phalanx formation, etc., we don't know that much about those things, but we do know that. Uh, in some of the sources that relate to us how these things worked, they would march up to each other with their spears and shields. And then it was essentially, it was, it was less of a battle of blades and more of a battle of wits where hmm. they would just kind of smash into each other. And then one side, like one guy might die and then everybody else would panic and run. 
right yeah. and then they would drop their shields and their helmets and everything and that's why the the helmet the the word you know trophy comes from the greek word for helmet because that's what they put on the field and hey we won but not very many people had to die mm-hmm. right and so that to because in today i think today we are so desensitized to certain types of violence, particularly, I mean, look at the 20th century where we just massacred everybody. I mean, that was just atrocious. And so that's our recent, you know, our, our recent experience of violence. But if you go back a thousand years, very different, right? I mean, it's, uh, first of all, they didn't have the tools to kill people en masse, but at the same time, it's, uh, I, I definitely see this argument of maybe it wasn't such a violent time. It's just, we're hyper-focused on the violent things, right? I, this would be a fun conversation for a whole different topic, but mm. you know our hyper, our hyper modern hyper focus on the violent aspects of this period in history. Yeah. Could that I think be what some... sells? Coming back to the Vikings, what what sells the Vikings is the violence. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. it's like our obsession right. with violence and the the idea that the Viking is the winner. It's this mm-hmm. big, you know, tough guy. He always wins, and he is a he. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Are we talking about well, guess, that last guess, week? Well, yeah. what's, what's, what's really interesting is, you know, and it's also, I, I also, when I, you know, give lectures, I talk to kids and, 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 and students. Uh, there's also this, you know, Hollywood, probably Hollywood-based idea of your mm-hmm. iconic Viking who is this tall, muscular, blonde guy who is this, you know, like a super boss in a computer game and he just, you know, runs and kills everything. But in fact, if you look at the skeletons and you look at the the lifespan, yeah, the average lifespan is yeah some thirty or forty years. The the, the average body build these were boys basically. These were guys uh, about standing about one one meter sixty seventy centimeters tall. Usually, yeah, probably skinny. They 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 don't look like you know your super bodybuilders. They probably look like your Muay Thai. Uh, fighters. That's probably the look. Yeah. Mm. They're, yeah. Thanks, even Fadlan. They look like they look like te- <laughs> when they go on their Viking expeditions, they look like teenagers. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I, I joke because that's the Arab chronicler Ibn Fadlan describes yeah. them as tall as palm trees and yeah. built like you know and, it, and the way he describes and I th- I feel like that's the that's what we in the modern in modern times have latched onto. I, I think the Annals of Fulda also describe uh, a botched raid on Aachen, uh, and they talked about, and that's where they talked about like blue tattoos too. So everybody's like, "Oh, the tattoo, the all the Vikings had tattoos," what, yeah. because they yeah, mentioned yeah. it once. <laughs> yeah. Why? Why not? I mean, tattooing is uh, it, it has been known for 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 a very long time, and all kinds of like bodily modifications. I, I wouldn't. Wouldn't doubt that. We cannot prove it archaeologically, unfortunately. Yeah. But yeah, uh, there, there, there's mentions of eye makeup in the, mm-hmm. th- the sources that speak about yeah, Scandinavians. Several independent sources. So uh, yeah, why why not? Yeah. It, well, it, I, I I was just pointing out that it's a big leap to take one mention and then mm. say blanket everybody had yeah, tattoos. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I I do think the you know the at least the Carolingians had a vested interest in in propaganda against Scandinavians mm. because they shared a border with the Danes, right? So a lot of these things that are being relayed to us about them, there's this whole idea that the Vikings were taller than average Europeans at the time, which is you know we 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 can't say that you know but mm. but there is a 
uh, going back to the annals of, I think it was the annals of Fulda. If I, I, I may be wrong on that, but there's a, there is a Carolingian chronicle that, that talks about this botched raid and they describe the slain bodies as being extremely tall, blonde, kind of this trope of Vikings. And yeah. that, that mention has informed, you know, informed 19th century historians that then popularized it. So now we have this vision of these like tall, but it, it, it's just, we're, we're misinterpreting Carolingian propaganda to demonize uh -huh. these these people who were raiding into their territory, but also there's a vested interest because I think the Carolingians being expansionist as they were, and I do believe they expanded into to parts of Poland as well. They, um, you know, they were probably planning at some point to invade and subdue, but, you know, they're just trying to rally, you know, public opinion almost. Well, that was <laughs> super important to them. <laughs> just a thought. <laughs> It's probably lucky then for those Western Slavs that um, Charlemagne had incompetent kids and grandkids. <laughs> okay. yeah. uh, ironically, the the son that took over the territories that are in now modern day Poland was Louis the German. Oh. <laughs> uh, so I, I do have one last thing. I, I, I don't want to, we're going to be running over time here, but I do have one question. It's just a curiosity because I did start my journey into studying the Viking age in the East. So when I was in college, I did um, early Russia as a whole course. And we looked at Kiev and Rus, et cetera. And the, so going back to this question of, you know, when, you know, how did the Vikings change Poland? You said not very much at all, uh, if at all. So, how much so if we think about Kiev and Rus, the narrative that I recall from studying this that that portion with the Eastern Slavs was it was a means to an end. It was the Scandinavians trying to get solidified trade relations with the Byzantines, right? Because they were so it wasn't they weren't particularly interested in the Slavic lands. It was they were trying to get to, you know, the uh, Constantinople was their their eventual end goal. As, do you, do you think that part of the reason there's less because if if you go east there's a lot more evidence there's a bigger first of all as you mentioned there's a bigger distinction between the eastern slavic uh, artifacts and the scandinavians so we can tell the difference better whereas in with the western slavs we can't really tell the difference because they're using all the same weapons but do you think there's do you think part of the reason vikings may have had less of an impact in poland has to do with there wasn't there wasn't uh anywhere like I, I don't know if I'm phrasing this correctly, but like in the east they're going to Constantinople, but they had nowhere mm. to go in the west. So maybe they just didn't penetrate as far or didn't have as much mm. of an incentive to go that far. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. And uh I've been thinking about the same the same thing and I, I'm not sure I actually have a good answer because as I mentioned you can, it's not as convenient as it is when traveling through Russia and Ukraine um, all the way to, to Constantinople. Um, but you can make part of that way on the Polish rivers. You can take the Vistula River, and as I said, it will take you at least as far as Krakow, which is far enough. Um, because from Krakow to Today's Ukrainian border, uh, it's about 250 kilometers, around 300 kilometers. So it's really not far, even if you have to ride or yeah, walk. Um, was there nothing of interest 
in the Polish lands for the Scandinavians? Well, there were no churches to raid, certainly, because this was a, at least then a holy pagan land and state pagan, despite the sort of official Christianization, which, as we know, it takes takes a while to to uh, to solidify. Um, but yeah, what 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 the land offered certainly was. Uh, manpower probably hence the slave market and Mieszko we think today was a key player in the European uh, or yeah even greater than European slave trade so they may have been some sort of intermediaries or, or in this sort of slave trade or maybe yeah facilitating this slave trade across very wide territory the Scandinavians um, they I think they may have been interested in some of the technology that the Slavs had mastered and that the Scandinavians didn't have. And I'm thinking about the, the art of building these massive strongholds, because you have to know that, and, and I'm sure you know that, of course, but it's for our listeners, uh, that before Harald Bluetooth raised those huge Trelleborg type fortresses, Denmark didn't know this kind kind of technology, didn't have this kind of technology. Mm -hmm. And there are traits in those strongholds and in their constructional features that point to the Western Slavic world and to Western Slavic influences, where such strongholds, not exactly of the same you know, design, but of the same sort of idea, uh, had existed before. Moreover, um, among the artifacts found within those strongholds and around them, there are actually objects of Slavic or Western Slavic provenance. Um, at Trelleborg, for instance, the richest grave in the Trelleborg cemetery is, is a grave of a foreigner. We don't exactly know where, maybe from Poland, because that's, you know, the isotopic evidence just shows that this is not a local. And uh, and this this foreigner is buried with a diagnostically Western Slavic axe uh, of a type that is only characteristic for this Western Slavic world. So who was this person? Some sort of, I don't know, Slavic supervisor, master builder or whatever, perhaps. So maybe coming back to the question, maybe the Scandinavians were interested in some technology. Maybe they were, they could see that at least in the 10th century, there is something happening in this part of the world that uh, there there is a new power rising and this power is conveniently located geographically between the east and the west between the Estonians and the rus and maybe these are people we can yeah collaborate with we can communicate with and uh, and this explains why or may explain why um Svein Forkbeard married uh, Mieszko's, Mieszko's daughter, yeah? Uh, and we know this, we know this for a fact. We don't quite know her name because she has different names and different sources, but, but the, there are such very high profile um, um, ties. Then there is the, then there is the influx of, uh, of silver and the, 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 the astonishing amount of silver hordes in Pomerania and, and, and around Poland. And that can also be linked to, for instance, the slave trade uh, or even wider cross-cultural contacts back in the day. Um, 
so yeah, I, I, that doesn't answer your question. I mean, yeah, no, I, th I, uh, that's no, I, I appreciate all that. The I, I wonder too if if and now we're just we're we're going down the rabbit hole. Uh, mm. <laughs> But Maybe. I wonder too if if uh, the the Scandinavians and and Western Slavs may have had some ties of convenience in regards to going back to the Carolingians and their expansionism. You know, the Carolingians were knocking at the Western Slavs' doorstep as well as the Danes, and mm. going back to these fortifications that you're talking about, it would make sense that they would they may have communicated uh, in a manner that would allow Danes then to create these forts to repel. Hmm. this big christian hmm. empire that was quite bellicose uh hmm. same with the with the western sauce i wonder if there was some pressure there for them to uh going back to the idea of maybe this maybe they weren't as violent as we thought that maybe they were working together the allies hmm. yeah yeah maybe we we also don't quite know if all these so-called stronghold strongholds were actually uh intended as sort of militaristic architecture um because some of them some of them for example don't have any buildings inside like within the within the rampart so they may have been just like ga gathering points or even some of them may have been yeah ritual sites we we don't quite quite know that yeah well it sounds like you have a lot of work cut out for you there's a lot of work yeah i think there is you won't be there's a lot of potential there yeah. yeah that's good well so maybe uh you'll have to come back some point later and talk with us again i'd love to yeah well i'm hoping to launch a new project about um actually slavic scandinavian interactions and the presence of uh slavic um migrants in the north so if that if that is successful i'd be happy to come back and and talk more about what the Slavs did for Scandinavia, but <laughs> they kind of turned turned the thing around. Um, yeah, well, we've already had what just that DNA study published not that long ago, right? Talking about the the, the migration going the other way, going to the north rather mm -hmm. than always being the diaspora out. We're having Judith on our in the first week in May too, so maybe we can we talk with her a little bit about that proposition as well right. this diaspora context so mm -hmm. um, awesome. but thank you this has been great it's been so interesting thank you so much for for having me and thank you for this discussion i think we've covered a lot of different yeah. topics yeah that's what we usually do meander all over the place <laughs> it's because it's interesting right CJ? Yeah, exactly one one thing lead, leads to the next and yeah yeah, exactly. So, well, I'm kind of bummed though. You won't be in Denmark when I get there. I was like, oh, maybe I could actually meet you over coffee or something. We can try somewhere else uh, some other time. I will certainly be around. Yeah, you're uh, not going to come out. The the um, SAA conference um, is no, in, well, no, it's, in my, it's in my home no. city in Portland in a couple of weeks. No, no, no. Yeah, bummer. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Oh, well. Well, thanks for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And hopefully until the next time. Yes. Yeah. Take care. Thank you so yeah. much. Great. Have a great evening. Bye. Bye. Have a good evening. Bye-bye.